Isaiah chapter 12, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12. I am a little bit gravelly today. At least one of us decided to vacuum up leaves yesterday and breathed a little bit too much leaf dust. And so now I am gravelly today, but the leaves were conquered and they are now in the yardy cart. But I apologize for the frog. Maybe it'll make it a little more interesting this morning. We're going to take a break starting today from Hebrews, as I mentioned last week. Uh, We will be looking at Isaiah 12 this morning as a uh, prelude to Thanksgiving this week. And then over the next four weeks, we will be looking at Romans chapter 5, the first several verses of Romans chapter 5 as, uh, as the anchor for our Advent celebration. But this morning... We're going to be in Isaiah 12. I don't know how familiar Isaiah 12 is to you. I think probably you're familiar with chapter 11 more than you are chapter 12. But 12 is just a great little passage. And I'm going to read it out loud. And I invite you to follow along as I read. And then we'll begin to talk about it after we read. Isaiah 12, beginning in verse 1. You will say in that day... I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. That you might comfort me. I'll take a break here. I'm going to do my best to hold it together today, but I'm this this passage has really hit me. Um, Shannon texted Terry this week and asked what songs for this passage, and I couldn't even talk about it. So, if I cry, I'm not going to apologize for it, but uh, it's just what's there, and I want you to... I'm, I'm hoping that this passage touches you the way it has me. Let's start over. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Over my years of pastoral ministry, when thinking of passages to speak on for Thanksgiving, my mind usually turns to the Psalms. I didn't go back to look. I have records, but I didn't go back to look. But I would guess that probably 90% of my Thanksgiving, pre-Thanksgiving sermons have been from the Psalms. And there's good reason for that. 
because that portion of our Bible is filled with poems which exalt God and offer thankfulness for who He is and what He has done. Almost every psalm you read, something about thanks comes out of them. So it's easy to pick one for Thanksgiving services. But this year was different for me, and for reasons that I can't remember now because of COVID and short-term memory loss. Uh, I don't remember how I ended up in Isaiah 12. Um, It's where God led me. He drew my attention to this brief passage in Isaiah, and I have come to appreciate what a wonderful chapter it is. It's profound. As I've come to study it, I've come to see that it's really the whole story of the Bible wrapped up in six verses. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration are found in here. Creation is implied. Fall is clear. Redemption is clear. And restoration is clear. Like so many of the Psalms, these six verses are a simple yet profound song of praise to God. Isaiah is a long book, 66 chapters. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to look at Isaiah. I had a teacher in one of my undergrad classes. I had a class in Isaiah. And that class was honestly one of my best classes to come to understand a book of the Bible. And I love Isaiah. It has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 chapters. It breaks out in the same 39-26 that the the Old and New Testament break out. Books, different books. Uh, The first part is very much about the Old Covenant, and the second part is very much about the New Covenant. It becomes just a uh, microcosm of the entire Bible, and it's a wonderful book to study. And some of our most familiar Christmas passages come from the book of Isaiah. But here in chapter 12, like so many of the Psalms, these six verses are a Uh, as I said, a profound song of praise to God. And in fact, verse 2 is actually a quote from Psalm 118, where he says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. As we look at this chapter, we find it is structured in two sections, just like the entire book is. The first section is reasons why God is worthy of our praise, and the second, a call for his people to praise him. It breaks out in verses 1 to 3 as the first section, and verses 4 to 6 as the second section. And this short chapter is actually an important pivot point in the book. Some people break Isaiah into three books, and um, commentaries will often follow that breakout. For example, I have a set of commentaries that are three volumes on the book of Isaiah. But you can break down Isaiah in a lot of different ways, and one of those ways is to see chapter 12 as a turning point. If you look at 
the book from a kind of a bird's eye view from a distance, so to speak, it, you'll see verses or chapters 1 to 11 as an extended section where God is condemning his people and he's condemning the nations around his people. He begins by, in chapter 1 by speaking of the empty-hearted religious practice of God's people. He speaks about their idolatry and he cries out against their injustice and the corruption of the leaders of the people. Welcome to the 21st century. It's just, it's just the same themes. In chapter 5, woes are spoken against the people because of greed and excess and mockery of God, the redefining of truth, false wisdom, and a drunken, corrupt justice system really the headlines of our news every day. Then you come to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah 6 is famous for the prophet's vision of God on his throne and reveals the righteousness of God and also reveals how even the best of the human beings feel justly condemned in his presence. As God has spent the first five chapters speaking about how reprobate the world has become, In chapter 6, he presents himself in his glory and majesty. And the prophet Isaiah stands before this holy God and says, Woe is me, I'm a dead man, because I have seen the Lord, and he sees his own sin. I am an unclean man, and I dwell in the midst of unclean people. Chapter 7 to 10 then contain prophetic declarations of God's judgment on his people for their rebellion and their pursuit of false gods, along with the utter destruction of the land of Assyria. The end of chapter 10 brings out Assyria like massive forests, trees everywhere, and they're all cut down to stumps. And then chapter 11 begins to speak of God's people and a future ruler, a promised future ruler and the beauty of his kingdom. Following chapter 12, we come to chapter 12 and then the whole thing kind of pivots. Chapter 12, chapter 13 begins specific prophecies of the judgment and destruction of the nations that have rejected God and harmed his people. It's prophetic, it's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy how God is going to bring justice to those who have persecuted his people. And as we come to chapter 12, it sits in the midst of all of that, looking back at the past, looking forward to the future, and calls for a present response of praise to God. That's how it sits in this letter. And as we begin in chapter 12, there are three words, and I've used this phrase before, but there are three words that to us are somewhat throwaway words. When we read the Bible, we often skip over certain phrases and certain words because they don't seem that important to us, and and we're just focusing on the big picture. But those 
phrases and those words are often very important because they set the, the, the frame of the big picture. And these three words that we probably just, that you probably just threw away to get to, I will give thanks, because obviously that's the main thing. These three words are found at the end of a phrase, you will say, in that day. In that day. Again, I doubt those three words grabbed your attention as I was reading it. I didn't read them with emphasis. And so you probably went right past them as I read. But they are a crucial anchor in that day is a crucial anchor or reference point that are necessary for us to properly understand what is being communicated. And these three words are not just a reference point in chapter 12. They do occur again in verse three, I mean verse four, you will say in that day. They are important to this chapter but they are actually an anchor throughout the entire book of Isaiah. As you study the book and you read the book, what you will find is that 42 times out of the 66 chapters, the prophet says, in that day, 42 times. If you were to fudge the phrase a little bit, move it around, massage it a little bit, you'll find 99 times that parts of the phrase that day or the latter day or something like that, 99 times the phrase is used in 66 chapters. It is a reference point. It is an anchor that we're supposed to keep coming back to as we read it. We find the first usage of in that day in chapter two, as God speaks of a terrifying judgment that is about to take place unless his people repent. An actual moment in time where judgment is going to come if there's no repentance. And that actually becomes a major theme through this letter or this book. The prophet is writing to God's people saying, if you repent, these things will happen. Blessing, beauty, wonder, usefulness. But if you don't repent, incredible judgment that you can't even imagine. That's, that goes back and forth in this letter. But in that day, is, the, is chapter 2 is the first place those words come out in relation to judgment. The last place they're used is in chapter 52, which is a, preference, a preface to the prophecy of a future redemption and sets up what we know as the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And goes on to talk about the coming Savior, the suffering servant, who will die in place of others to take away their sin. In fact, in that day is a phrase that refers to a particular time when the judgment of God comes upon his enemies and the blessing of God comes upon his people. It's one phrase for two pers perspectives, the judgment of the ungodly 
and the redemption of God's people. How is it used here in chapter 12 then? This phrase sets the context for what we're going to read in chapter 12. So how does it function here and what is the message that we are to get from it? Well, in the immediate context of chapter 12, we actually go have to go all the way back to chapter 10. So if you'll turn back to chapter 10 and verse 20. God speaks, or the prophet speaks the words of God and says, in that day, after he's been speaking of the judgment of Assyria, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. In that day, talks about this judgment that's coming and the redemption of God's people. Following a more detailed accounting of what will happen to to Assyria, if you come to chapter 11, and this is continuing the language of in that day, actually I skipped something here. I don't know why I skipped this in my notes. But in verse 27, let me add this in chapter 10 and verse 27. In that day, his burden, the burden of Assyria, and Egypt will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. I don't know if it comes to your mind or not, but there is a famous statement by Jesus where he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden and are burdened. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is light. The inference is that there is another yoke already on you that needs to be taken off. And that's prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 10. In that day, God will redeem his people and will remove the yoke of Assyria and Egypt. But as he continues here going down in chapter 10, he comes to chapter 11 where there is the famous passage. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There is this one who is prophesied, who is coming in that day. In that day, judgment will begin. In that day, redemption will become, begin. In that day, the yoke will be broken. In that day, a righteous ruler shall come. 
And the question is, who is this person that shall come forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse? In answering that question, we have a major clue as to actually when that day begins. And we also are clued in to who it could possibly be. You already know the answer to that question if you've been well taught in the Bible. Who is that person? Who is this this shoot from the stump of Jesse? Jesus. And there's evidence for that in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans 15 quotes from this verse in chapter 11, as well as verse 10 of chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Paul takes both of those passages in Romans 15, quoting them, showing that it's speaking of Jesus. So we have no question, if we study the fullness of the Bible, we have no question that chapter 11 is speaking of Jesus, that this ruler is going to come and he's going to rule in righteousness in that day. This means that we should interpret chapter 12 where he says, you will say in that day, We should interpret that as right now, beginning with the birth of Jesus, in that day. In that day, the judgment of God upon his enemies begins. And in that day, the redemption of God's people begins. Peter stood up, quoted from one of the Old Testament prophets, as as. The Jews began, the Jews from many different places began to speak in many different languages. I mean, the the disciples began to speak in many different languages to these people who came from many different places. Peter stood up and said, this is that day. This is that day. The judgment of God is beginning and the redemption of God is beginning. But this same chapter, chapter 11, goes on to speak of a coming fullness of Jesus' kingdom, which you're very familiar with, except it gets misquoted all the time. The lion is not going to lay down with the lamb. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says the lion will lay down with the lamb, although it shows up on all kinds of Christmas cards. It actually says the wolf shall lay down, shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. As Isaiah speaks what God has said to him, there's a future day, there's a future kingdom that obviously has not yet come. And this is when we move into one of those areas of the Bible that we call already but not yet. It's already begun. That day has already begun. So Peter was not wrong when he stood up and said, this is that day. The root of Jesse has come. He has broken the yoke of Assyria and Egypt. But what was prophesied in a, in a momentary context to God's people then speaks of something greater than actual nations and speaks of the power of Satan and the power of sin. That the yoke has been broken by the root of Jesse, by the shoot of Jesse. That this one has come already, but it's clear that there's a lot of things that have not yet come. God's ancient people looked forward to that day. We, as God's modern people, look back to that day and see it as moving to its final culmination. But while we do not yet enjoy a world of peace and harmony, there is that day coming. But there are things that have already happened through Jesus' death and resurrection while we wait for the full experience of things that remain in the future. So with all of that in mind, let's go to chapter 12 and see what we will say in that day, which is now. I love how verse 1 starts. You will say... All the way up to this point, he's been saying, in that day, in that day, in that day, and suddenly in chapter 12, he says, you will say. Words that should flow from our lips because they're coming from the abundance of the heart. And what the prophet wants us to see is that what he is about to unveil is amazing and wonderful. You will say things because they are the outflow of the sacrificial work of Jesus and the foundation of our relationship with God the Father. You will say in that day because it is something that captivates our mind and flows from our lips. And what God prophesies through Isaiah that we will say is this, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Because though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away so that you might comfort me. Do you realize 
what these words are saying. Do you realize the change that has happened in God's attitude towards you because of Jesus? You will say in that day. What that means is that the people before that day could not say these words. They had no experience of what these words say. They could not say these things that are said in verse 1 because the, the shoot of Jesse had not yet come. God was angry with his people. But because of this day, that day, God's people will say, I give thanks to you, O Lord. You were angry with me. You're not angry with me anymore. I realize that I talk about this topic a lot. And I also realize that probably you get tired of me being repetitive. But this truth about God. And so I would ask, if you would, one more time to indulge me on this subject of God's anger. I'm not making this up. I'm not sucking out of my thumb. This is plain truth spoken in Isaiah 12 of a day to come that Paul says has come in Romans 15. This is not some whacked out theological thing that I came up with so that I could be unique or feel good about myself. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah that Paul picked up on and said, it's happened. God, if you are one of his children, is no longer angry with you. Why do we push back against that? Why do we feel that we have to keep that from God's people? Why would I sit at the table with a Bible faculty member who says you can't tell people that? Or they'll think they can live however they want to live. Why when I say to him, show me in the Bible, he says that's not the point. You can't tell people that. Do you realize how sad that is? That what God has spoken himself to his people, people say you can't tell people that. But not only is God saying this, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, you will say you will say, you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. That you might comfort me. The plain truth is that because of our sin and rebellion against God, we deserved His wrath and we deserve His just condemnation. We deserve His judgment. 
It is not wrong to be angry with sin. And it is not wrong for God to be angry with human beings who rebel against His ways. But Jesus, dying in our place, took on Himself the wrath of God and bore the law's just demands. The law says they're wrong. Condemn them. Kill them. And Jesus hung on the cross and said, I take it. I take it all. And because of this, hear me, God's anger is gone. It is that day. And because Jesus took the wrath of God, that is not some fringe doctrine outside of the mainstream of theology. That is core theological orthodox truth that Jesus took your wrath upon Himself on the cross. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. And because He took all of it, God's anger is gone. Folks, I want to say this clearly and bluntly with no massaging. When you believe or communicate that God is angry with your sin until you confess it again, you are diminishing and denying the work of Jesus on the cross when He took the wrath of God in His fullness. I think that's a problem to understate it. Because Jesus did this, God has become your salvation. And I want you to see in verse 2 what He says. He says in verse 1, you will say, and it's continued in verse 2, behold, look, this is amazing. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Now we lift that verse out of context and put it on plaques and we apply it to the general milieu of our lives. All this stuff is happening around me and because God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. There is truth in that and take it where you find it in Scripture, but it's not here. In the context of chapter 12, he is talking about what's coming in that day. That God was angry with me and He's no longer angry with me. Behold, He's my salvation. I will not trust and not be afraid of Him. I do not live in terror of God because He has become my salvation. He was ripped with me, to put it in modern context. His wrath was held like a reservoir, according to Paul. 
And it all poured out on Jesus. It's still accumulating for those who have not accepted God. But for me, it poured out on Jesus. And I should have lived in terror. And I should be in a place of terror of God. But He's no longer angry with me. I will trust Him. I will not be afraid of Him. An important passage in Hebrews 12 is going to come where he says, you have not been called to Mount Zion. You you have not come to, I mean, sorry. You have not come to Mount Sinai. And he goes on to talk about the terror of it and how the people asked Moses that God would stop talking because it was too terrifying for them. He says, you have come to Mount Zion with myriads of angels in celebration. I will trust I will not be afraid. I will adore. I will love. I will wonder. I will be amazed. But I will not live in terror of God because He is no longer angry with me. Because I've become such a great person? Absolutely not. Because of Jesus. His day has come. And His death took God's wrath. But there's something else in here. (laughs) And this is what really gets to me. Understand this, that as Jesus, the beloved, only Son of God, hung on that cross, He received Zero comfort. He offered comfort to John. He offered comfort to his mother. He received no comfort. There were no kind words from his father. His father abandoned him to the cross. That's what it means that he left him there. Jesus did not stop becoming part of the Trinity. He was abandoned by the Father to the cross without rescue. Myriads of angels could have come and rescued Him. There was no comfort from angels. Jesus could have taken Himself off that cross, but there was no comfort to Him and He stayed. He received no comfort. He received no encouragement from His Father. So that through His death to forgive our sin. Get this. We might enjoy the comfort of God. We might enjoy the comfort of God. As righteous children loved by their Father. Read what it says. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away so that you might comfort them. Comfort me. And then we get ticked off at it when it doesn't go the way we want it to. Maybe I'm the only guy who does that. And we stiff arm his comfort. It's amazing. That's an amazing statement. Your anger turned away so that you might comfort me. 
Do you realize that God hung His Son on the cross so that you could experience the comfort of God because He's no longer angry with you? Do you realize that when we don't tell people that God's no longer angry with them, that we're also withholding from people the comfort of God? It's wonderful to ponder. And yet I find often that Christians are afraid to believe and live in the reality of this truth. Why is it so hard for us? Why do we push back against this? Do you really believe that God is mad to hear at you while He's offering you comfort? This just logically doesn't make sense let alone scripturally, doesn't make sense. But we stiff arm the comfort of God. We don't accept the comfort of God because it seems too good to be true. And we don't live in the fullness of our relationship with our Father. So I would ask you this morning, are you willing to believe to the point that you and I actually fulfill the prophecy that God spoke through Isaiah? Are you willing to accept the simple truth that's presented here in Hebrews chapter, I mean, Isaiah chapter 12? Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away so that you might comfort me. Maybe I should have just preached on this verse today. God sent His Son to die on that cross, killed Him on that cross, not only to pay for your sin, but in doing so to to satisfy His anger so that He might comfort you. It wasn't just a non-essential byproduct of something that happened. These words here, that you might comfort me, speak of intention and purpose. That God killed His Son in order that you might be able to experience His comfort. And we want to take that away. Because people can't handle the truth, to borrow from a movie line. I happen to believe that the Holy Spirit is big enough for you to know the truth and still obey God. Are you willing to say, because of that day, I will give thanks to you, O God, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. But there's more. Verse 4 tells us of another thing God's people say because of that day. Because of that day, all who are His children, 
who have become his royal priesthood before him, those who are his treasured possession, these people, you and I and millions of others say together, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. When a person comes to realize all that God has done for him in Christ, and specifically these things here. God says through the prophet Isaiah, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. This phrase indicates personal dependence upon God. I can't do this without Him. I cannot live the Christian life. I cannot live in obedience to Him without Him. I must call on His name. And it proclaims to other people to call on His name as well. This phrase acknowledges what Jesus said when the disciples asked him, asked him to teach them to pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Call upon his name. It acknowledges that all we are and all we were able all we will ever accomplish that is good, all that we will ever be is because of who he is and what he has done. And the more we understand this, the more we understand our dependence upon him, the less we will exalt ourselves and the more we will praise him, the less we will hold people up as our saviors and our hope, like presidential candidates and governors and mayors, and legislators. The less we will hold them up, we will not call upon their name. We will not have our identities established by their name, but his name. And as I've thought about this, I've wondered if the reasons that Christians in general lack in this area of trusting in God and calling upon His name, if we lack in this area because we think too much of ourselves or other human beings and too little about God. But here in these verses, there is an overflow of praise to God because of what He has done and who He is. One author puts it this way. God is the author, the cause, the agent, the accomplisher of our salvation. Salvation apart from him is unthinkable. In the councils of eternity, God the Father ordained unto life and salvation his people. In time, God the Son wrought that salvation by his death upon Calvary's cross. And also in time, God the Holy Spirit applies to the hearts of his own the blessings which Christ has obtained for them by his death. In obtaining salvation for man, God was active. 
In salvation, we are delivered from the guilt and the pollution of our sins, and we receive the wondrous and blessed righteousness of the eternal Christ. See, I'm not the only one who says that. This guy is a pretty well-known, important guy out there. I'm not going to tell his name because I don't want you to hang your hat upon what somebody else said, but upon what's in Scripture. God is our Father, and by an act of His omnipotent grace adopts us as His own children. In the fullest and deepest sense, we receive God. What more can we have? What more do we need than God Himself? And it makes me wonder if our lack of praise to God, that we do not often say, give thanks to God, call upon His name is because we desire and value temporary things far more than the eternal. And I wonder if our messed up values affect our desire to speak of God and our burden that his person and works are known in all the earth. This give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, is not only an an acknowledgement of my personal dependence upon God, but it is also the proclamation that has to go out to the nations that there is salvation in none other. Call upon His name. And that leads me to one last statement in this passage that is good for us to remember as we go from here and live our lives. I want you to look at verse 6 with me. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In that day, the Holy One of Israel will come and dwell in your midst. I want you to never forget that God never forsakes or leaves you. Never forget that He is in you and with you. Never forget that He is great and good in your midst. Never forget Paul's words to the Ephesian church, reminding them of the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God is great in our midst. And he is doing great things in our midst, collectively and individually. I've had a couple people over the last couple weeks, just out of the blue, one I haven't talked to for, I can't even tell you how long it's been. He was a He was a colleague at the college, so it's been almost 20 years since I have really had a conversation with him. And out of the blue this past week, he wrote and said um, that you've, you've been a burden to my heart the last few days, and I've just felt compelled to pray for you. He doesn't know anything in my world. And somebody else called and said, just wondering how you're doing. You've been on my mind. I 
And I've told them what's going on in my family, what's going on in our church in general, what's going on in me. But you know, as I spoke with these individuals or wrote them back, God just continually brought to my mind what He has been doing here in people's lives. And that He has shown Himself great in our midst. I have been so thankful to be a part of Northbrook for over seven years. And I've been so thankful to see how God has used His Word in your lives. And I'm so thankful to see how, how many of you over those years started at point A and because of my investment and the investment of a lot of other people in your lives through the work of God, He has grown you and brought you to abundant places. And all I could do was stand back and say, God has been great in our midst. He has done great things in our midst. He's done great things in me, and He's done great things in you, and He's done great things through us. And what should we do about that? Well, as believers, we're inhabitants of Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come, according to Hebrews 13. You have come already to Mount Zion. So what should we do as inhabitants of Zion? Sing and shout for joy. Because great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. As I reflected on this, I began to wonder if some of the discouragement of my life and some of the discouragement in the lives of people around me is a failure of our is is a result of our failure to remember or a failure to believe that God has been that God is that God will be great in our midst. I know I have far too much of a tendency to focus on the negative things that are happening and to get weighed down by those negative things in my own life, in the lives of others, in the world around me. But according to this, Reflecting on the fact that God is great in our midst should bring shouting and singing for joy. There are parts of this passage I don't have time for this morning, but I'd like to close this morning by reading again Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. 
With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, you are so amazing. My mind cannot wrap itself around your goodness and your greatness. Your kindness to us, to me, your love. In contrast to your goodness and kindness and love, there is one whose head has been crushed and he's in his death throes. He is evil and wicked and spiteful. There is a part of me, Father, that reflects my original Father. And I pray that in my heart you would continue to do a work of crushing that. That you would kill the flesh. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit you would cause me to want to know you more, to love you more, and to serve you more. I pray for this group that you have brought together that we call Northbrook. Father, we're not big. We're not seen as successful. We're not seen as the up-and-coming place. But I'm glad you don't care. I'm glad that you are great in our midst. And I'm glad that you are working through jars of clay. I'm glad that in your sovereignty you brought us together. I'm glad that by the Spirit you are growing us together. I'm glad that in Jesus we have love together. And I thank you that by your will and your promise, you are doing good things through us together. God, cause us to understand who you are and what you've done for us in a way that we will shout and sing for joy because we see your great and powerful hand at work in our midst. I thank you that because of Jesus, you can be in our midst and we can be with you. In your son's name, amen.